Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in to another edition of Stand Up For The Truth. Very important show today. And, um, man, there's so much to talk about what's going on in the country, in our government, in the world, with Israel. And we'll get right to it with a special guest coming right up. Father in heaven, thank you so much for another day. Um, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we ask for wisdom, and you say you give generously to those who ask, and we sure do need it these days. Please give us um, a, a biblical perspective, an eternal perspective as we see things happening all around us, Lord. Help us to see through the lens of Scripture. Help us to understand the times that we're living in and help us really wake up and um, recognize our role as believers. We have a purpose for such a time as this, and that is the truth of the gospel, and that is defending the faith, and at times, exposing the darkness. So give us the strength to do that and the discernment. Lord, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for every blessing, we, every good thing we have in Christ. We give you all the glory for our lives, for what you're doing. I know you're always working, Lord, and uh, we just need you to wake up more of the remnant, wake up more of your people already in the church, Lord, and help us do what we are called to do. Help us to do the work that you've sent us to do here. Um, we lift up this hour to you. We pray for encouragement for our listeners, plus that they would be informed and just directed toward your word of truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's the debate that won't go away. Should Christians be involved in politics well, this just leads to more questions. What do you mean by involved? And <laughs> What issues do you say are political? What issues might be moral? Uh, what about the so-called separation of church and state? Then, what about pastors and church leaders? Should they discuss politics and government? And to what extent? Should they do it during church services? <gasps> Some of you gasp. After all, like we discussed yesterday with Jelaine Appling, someone's morality will be legislated. And our government is allegedly of the people, for the people, but it's hard not to notice the downward spiral of morality in what's often referred to today as the post-Christian uh, culture in America. This doesn't necessarily mean the church is dead and gone, but the polls and surveys pretty much confirm the fact that we are not effectively influencing culture, government, and society any longer. That's got to change and fast. Today's guest, we welcome back. It's been years. Pastor Chris Quintana joins us as we look at the recent events in America and Israel through the lens of a biblical worldview. Lots of peas to tackle today. Pastor's perspective on politics, peace plans, Trump, Pelosi, and so much more. Chris is the senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Cyprus in California. Hey, Chris, welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth, brother. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, David. It's been a long time, and I'm very excited to be with you. Yeah, thank you. And we've got a lot of new listeners. I think um, they need to know who you are, where you uh, are at right now. I know Southern California, your church there, your teaching and things that you've been doing for how many years out there in SoCal? Oh, well, this is our 34th year at that particular church. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as the uh, pastoring or the senior pastoring, uh, this is just about 10 years since my pastor before me went to be with the Lord, and um, we've we've enjoyed being involved in ministry for pretty much the whole time we've been there. Uh, and you're teaching uh, Calvary Chapel, verse by verse, um, emphasis on prophecy, emphasis on the whole counsel of God. That's why you know we have you on. We appreciate pastors like you, and the fact that you are not ashamed or afraid to speak out about political issues. We'll get to that more and more in, in uh, a couple minutes. But um, you are going to be making a transition. Would you like to just share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, uh, 
if you're going to be living in any particular place uh, for as long as you are, uh, as long as we have, you're going to probably, if you're married, you're going to have children, and we have. <laughs> and uh, now our daughter has had a son, and uh, he's a couple of years old. But because of the way that things are here in California, um, they moved to Texas a little bit more than a year ago. And uh, my wife and I had really felt kind of uncomfortable being in California for us, such a variety of reasons and that, that sense of missing our kids. So uh, my wife and I are going to be moving to Texas to be near to them. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a big, big change. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've never had a church home other than Cyprus. And so uh, it'll be quite a quite a difference, but it opens some very, very uh, exciting ministry opportunities. Could you describe, I know it's not just your family and you're moving there for, you know, to, because you're a granddad now, and um, but there have been a lot of issues that Christians and conservatives have with the government there in California and the state. Do you, you want to maybe sum up a few things and a few things that, I mean, people are starting to be pinched and squeezed and taxed? <laughs> yes. Um, cost of living matters here. Uh, are are putting such an incredible pressure on people to try to have a place to live and uh, just the, the day-to-day living expenses of food and all the rest of it have become really insanely high here. Uh, at the same time, there's some almost completely inexplicable public policies that come out of Sacramento, it seems like weekly, that make you wonder who's in control here because it, it just seems so so counterintuitive about um, how to run a state and, and keep people you know happy and and, uh, and it's I've lived here my whole life I'm mm. 54 now and I've never lived anywhere but this state and it just genuinely does not even resemble where I grew mm. up we lived out there um, for a while, my wife and I. We uh, met and married out there. She was out there for 15 years, I think, 14, 15. I was out there for 17, 18. So we know. Um, and at that time, this was we moved back to the Midwest in 2003. It didn't seem like Christians were um, really being hated, <laughs> persecuted, um, discriminated against. But now some of the laws out there in California and what happens in California – doesn't stay in California. What are your concerns that that some of these things might spread state by state? Uh, because California is very influential. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because there is, um, if you remember, within the last year, there was a lot of reporting that a law had been passed here, which would prevent pastors from being able to speak on matters uh, pertaining to LGBT and things like that. Mm-hmm. And what so often happens, and I, I really wish that the, the Christian church would be a bit more careful about how they report things. Um, here's what it was. It was a, what's known as a concurrent resolution in uh, the, the both chambers of our House and Senate here in the state. It was just a resolution. So whenever you read resolutions, it's whereas, you know, fill in the blank, whereas, fill in the blank, Therefore, we resolve to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have the force of law. It never made it out of. It, it never even made it to a committee because it's not even drafted as a law. It's drafted as a resolution. But it is kind of the canary of the coal mine. This is kind of testing the waters. And it was anyone who, for for a um, an exchange of money, would not be able to speak to somebody who was LGBT and say that there is a way to to come out of this because they would absolutely bristle at the idea that there's anything to come out of, that it's totally natural and it's acceptable and all the rest. Um, where that would become an issue with, with um, churches is they're not, you're not charging for your counseling, but since people donate money to, uh, to keep it in operation, then you can't go using the Bible to tell people that there's a way out of homosexuality. Hmm. Now, that's if if this ever saw the force of law and somebody wanted to make a case out of it. So many things would have to happen. But as you and I both know, 
it starts with things like this. Yes, a resolution. Yes. Exactly. Let's take the temperature of the public. Let's find out if there's any kind of backlash. Let's see if we're going to run into any kind of headwinds on this. And so this is just finding out how this would work if we ever try to make this law. So it's it's the beginning. It's the creeping of this type of legislation that would, they hope, silence the church. But oddly enough, the church silences itself most of the time because it doesn't even want to address these topics. Right. And and sometimes, Pastor Chris, uh, it, people don't even find out about it. I mean, you, you know, to get the public's temperature. I mean, oftentimes people don't even know that these resolutions are being Past discussed. We've just talked about this case in in uh, Wisconsin yesterday. This is happening. They're actually passing this around, and it's it's just amazing that it's, it's going through government, and most people have no idea. It has to do with conversion therapy, the ban on conversion therapy, and things like that. But let's let's move on, Chris. We've got a lot to talk about, including the Trump administration Middle East peace plan. But before we get to that, um, <laughs> you've been challenged recently on uh, Facebook for sharing your honest thoughts uh, about politics and have received I would what may be considered friendly fire uh, because you're a pastor. Um, and I love, I could read what you wrote, particularly one of these posts that said, given the events of the last few months, weeks, and days, I've been reminded how often I post on political matters. So again, uh, I will address this uh, criticism I get from people. I'm told, this is you speaking, I t- I'm told I post too much on political matters and it isn't a pastoral thing to do, and then you say as though there's a pastoral handbook that says anything about it. I would love for you to defend just your as a leader in a church and a man of God who people look up to for you know discernment and biblical issues and how to look at culture through the lens of Scripture. Can you share your thoughts on posting about politics? Sure, uh, I, I address it in two parts. The first part is that I'm a private citizen, so. The sad part about it, when when the politicians are doing things that are so obviously ungodly, we have to live under that governance. So if we don't use our voice to say, yeah, I'm a a pastor, but I'm also a citizen, and i got to live under whatever these people are doing, if I don't have an opinion on it, then I'm just going to – and don't have a voice in it, then it's never going to be heard. And what happens with churches – so often in pastors is really it's a rank ignorance in them that they don't realize that they're not hamstrung by the law Hmm. and they'll always point to the the 501c3 and the johnson amendment and if they use that as their cover for for oftentimes being afraid to talk about these things they don't even understand the law exactly so as a pastor i just can't advocate for a particular candidate but I can talk on moral issues until I have no more breath left. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that that does in the way of, of infringing on the law. So that's the, the, the private citizen part. As far as a pastor is concerned, to me, though, it, it is clearly speaking to Israel, but what you see God says to Ezekiel, I encourage people to go look at it, but especially at the beginning of chapter 33 of Ezekiel, he talks to him about being a watchman, and he uses the analogy of the watchman that's supposed to watch for encroaching danger, like from armies and foreign uh, um, entities. And then God turns it to being a spiritual matter. And I believe that the pastors, in a modern application of that same God that we're talking about, he should have the front line should be the people in churches from pastors and leaders warning the people of the encroaching danger spiritually. And for the most part, the church is silent for any variety of reasons, whether they don't believe the Bible or if they're afraid that somehow they might run into disfavor with the government or they're afraid of the backlash of the people. Um, But none of those are, are reasons why they should remain silent because then they're not warning the people of what's coming. And I believe, um, as far as the 501c3, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Johnson Amendment, because I wrote about that about five years ago, and this it's one of the most popular blogs on my website. One of the reasons is, right after the time I wrote about it, um, that was when Trump brought it up when he started campaigning. 
He said, I will repeal the Johnson Amendment. I'm going, really? Someone's actually talking about it. And so people were started Googling the Johnson Amendment. There was a time, Chris, where for about a six-month span, my blog was in the top 10 Google search results because no one else was writing about it at the time and other people had shared it. So it really, I mean, it, it, it helped get the word out about what that was. But pastors, there's a Pulpit Freedom Sunday once a year where pastors speak out, I think, maybe even to the point of endorsing a candidate and that's once a year, and nobody, no pastor or church has lost their nonprofit status because the IRS knows it's a losing battle if they were to come after them. So they speak out on these issues. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, to me, I would love to see there finally be a court case where this thing could get shot down. Yes, um, yes. I would love to see it. And frankly, you know, the, the funny thing about it is, is to endorse a candidate. People would say that to me. Well, does that mean you want to endorse a candidate? Gosh, you know, I, there's not a lot of candidates I've ever seen that I would want to, quote, endorse. Right. Um, I, what I've been able to do is to say, I don't care who's running at any particular time. My, my counsel to people would always be the same. Whoever it is that you have the option to vote for, one or one of them is going to clearly advocate for your point of view and your values better than the other. So it's it's a pretty obvious choice most of the time, and our our current president is such a such an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's go there. He's a guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a guy that I think most Christians would say he's the most the most uh, from a values point of view, policy wise, he's probably the most pro Christian values guy that we could find policy wise. Yes, but because of because of his bluster and, and the, the the way he does things publicly, uh, people are so put off by his personality. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when when people will ask me again as a private citizen, who did I vote for? I say, well, is there really any question who I voted for? I had one of two options. Well, <laughs> you know, they'll say, well, Trump's such an immoral person, and I'll say, well, so what was Hillary? <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I only have to look at, at the reshaping of the judiciary that has happened under him. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's probably the best kept secret in the world that he is absolutely reshaping not just the Supreme Court, but all the federal appointments are unlike we've ever seen. Didn't they just appoint a and, couple in the last week, a couple more justices, federal appointments? Yes. Yeah. It's they're not, yes. it's like nonstop, and we forget how important that is because a lot of judges have been ruling from the bench, and um, you know. Anyway, I I want to qu- share a quote with you from a pastor out there, um, Shane Eidelman. This is a great article. I don't think we'll get to it because I want to get to so much more the impeachment and the Middle East peace plan. But he said, as a personal observation, because he he was talking about Christians, and you can put that in quotes in some cases that say, how can you follow Jesus and support Donald Trump? And at the end of this article, he said, as a personal observation, I've noticed that those who oppose President Trump typically embrace liberal theology, and it makes one wonder what is truly leading them, worldly mandates or biblical principles. And I don't know if you heard, Chris, about this, apparently a worship pastor, and I'll put pastor in quotes, um, that came out with a worship song, believe it or not, that the lyrics say, they started putting kids in cages, ripping mothers from babies, and I looked to you, God, to speak on their behalf. So they have a perceived idea of what's happening at the border, and they're putting, I'm sure it's a progressive Christian. Um, I would just love to get your take on that <laughs> in, in what's yeah. happening there. Well, it seems like our, quote, worship pastor must have written that song during the Obama administration, because that's when the cages were first built, quote, unquote. Uh-huh. So I'm so tired of this, again, the misinformation. And the problem is, when you think about it, like, because of how you just set this question up, this shows you that the church is becoming very vocal in the propaganda. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, unfortunately, you can call yourself a church or a worship leader or a pastor or anything else, and really that becomes just a title. So then you would have to say, okay, well, you hold the title, but do you actually do what the calling requires? Mm-hmm. And as you and I well know that, um, I, I, I know I really raise some eyebrows when I say it, 
I think that the, the genuine Church of Jesus Christ, the believers that that would be born again, um, are a statistic anomaly in humanity. We're seven billion plus people, but even of the people that call themselves Christians, if you ask them, how do you know? What what makes you a Christian? How do you how do you identify what is a Christian? Or you know, how do you know that you're saved? Mm-hmm. Most people are going to unfortunately be really struggling for an answer. And another question I love to ask people, I'll say to them, if you just ask them a a really simple question, if you died right now, do you know that you would go to heaven? And if a person comes back and says, I hope so, then you realize that we got a problem here. Yes, yes. You you may be saying that because it sounds, you know, humble, but stop it because you're really taking God's word and you're not applying it correctly because there's an assurance that's given to the believer, not because of us, but because of him. Amen. And pastors are not saying those things. But, you know, let's face it, you and I, if we were to go ahead and survey most churches and see what they do on a Sunday morning, I've said this a lot lately, especially in context of the things that you and I are talking about. Most of the churches nowadays that we know of, because we look at them here in the West, they really only exist in the West. And to give the best uh, illustration that I can, think of what Joel does down in Texas and take Lakewood Church and try to put it in Kabul, Afghanistan, or Mogadishu. Oh, my goodness. And tell me how long it would last. Right. So, Or put it on the Mount of Olives in 50 AD. How well would it do in that kind of an environment? So if it's not a church that could function everywhere it shouldn't really function anywhere so you're saying persecuted christians and martyrs are they're they're guilty of not living their best life now okay (laughs) sorry yeah they need to they need to buy the book right (laughs) yeah sorry because we've got to take a break but when we come back we're yeah we are going to talk impeachment we are going to talk the uh, trump administration middle east peace plan with pastor chris quintana that's coming up more stand up for the truth next Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. We we have Pastor Chris Quintana from Southern California on the line, and we're talking now about the impeachment sham that uh, some on the left would say it was absolutely necessary to do that and uh, crimes, abuse of power and all this, um, high crimes. Um, Democrats are not giving up. Recent headlines say they are going to continue to go after Trump um, and, and, and nonstop. It, apparently, Chris, I want to get your your thoughts on that. I mean, notice how the media I, I've never seen and never maybe is not. I haven't seen any articles on how much taxpayer money they've spent and how many resources they've used over the last several years of the people's time and money and to devote to taking down this president. And we're going to talk about double standards in a minute because we're, I love that you put on your Facebook seven senators who voted not to remove Bill Clinton, who was proven to have been guilty. But yeah. anyway, we'll talk about that. But I just want to get your overall take. If you can sum up the impeachment sham and, and the result that brought us to the State of the Union and what happened this week. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's been quite something to behold, and uh, what you what, what we found there were some people that said that what happened with uh, with Clinton was really just a partisan thing, and it was just political. And you know, let people go ahead and have that debate. That's just fine. But then you can come to it and say, but was were there felonies that were committed? Now, some people would say when you read the the clause about impeachment, it says that you have to be guilty of bribery or treason or other high crimes. Well, that basically means it would have to be something on par with that. So if it's treason and bribery, I mean, that's that's about as, as horrible a thing as a president can do. In this case, the two things that they brought against President Trump clearly were not even crimes, even if they had been committed. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole thing was based on speculation. And so it was a fabricated thing. But if people are paying attention, they would remember that these people that ended up doing the impeachment, Schiff and Pelosi, Nadler, all the rest of them, they've been talking about doing this since he was elected. Right. So this was an outcome in search of a crime. And we were told by Schiff and others that it was 
just a matter of time, you would all see the evidence that we have that that Russia and the Trump administration colluded to to you know take the election, and that fizzled out, and so they hastily put together this whole thing with Ukraine, because uh, basically they they realized we're running out of time, and the other one just it was a it was an empty well, so with Ukraine, the the hypothesis was this: the president abused his power. And he strong-armed a foreign president to do something in looking into the Bidens, and he wouldn't do he wouldn't release money to them unless they began that that whole process, and that would be the basis for the crime. Well, the results of it was nothing was ever done in looking into the Bidens, and the money was released to them. So even the accusation had no fruit. So. The idea that he would have obstructed Congress, he would have he would have just defied the House and said, "Take us to court if you want that stuff." But they never did. So even the the uh, obstruction of Congress had no merit to it in the legal sense. So clearly, the Senate did the right thing. But the hypocrisy was that those seven senators that voted to acquit Clinton, all seven of them voted to remove uh, President Trump, who didn't commit a crime. Right. So it shows how just blatantly political it was. Double standard. And yeah, sure. Yeah. If it if it wasn't for double standards, they wouldn't have any. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> it's it's just the, eh, but it, it's modern politics. Uh, it the, the the nation is absolutely absolutely polarized. But don't kid yourself to think it wasn't before him. Right. Very polarized in the last administration as well. Well, here's I would suggest that President Obama was one of the most divisive political politicians and presidents in American history. And then the reaction to the election of Donald Trump, it wasn't Trump that got in and started dividing people. People were divided because he won. And they were lashing out from the beginning. And as you say, this was never about the rule of law. Let's talk about the State of the Union briefly and the fact that I was so surprised that Trump contained himself. He did it. it, I was just really pleasantly surprised at his demeanor and that he didn't attack them. He didn't gloat. Um, And here Nancy Pelosi rips up the the State of the Union speech afterwards and yet you know off mic or you know in other places you say oh I pray I pray all the time I pray for the president as you know she want anyway we won't go down to Pelosi policies because uh, that shows she's not a very good Catholic but what's your take on the State of the Union now and he was sharing a lot of things that the administration has been doing that of course the media won't talk about and people on the left in Hollywood the media they're they're cheering her for that defiant action of ripping up the State of the Union speech. What do you think, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they try to use the justification that he didn't shake her hand. And I, I, you know, I would probably venture to guess that maybe only one out of 100 people know that she really kind of, uh, I would think the whole ball got rolling when she broke with with what is protocol and decorum in her in her pronouncing of him when he came into the room. Hmm. It's supposed to be. something along the lines of it's my distinct pleasure and honor to present to you the presidents of the United States. Right. And instead of just members of Congress, the president of the United States, it was a slap yeah. and it was intentional. People don't, so, people don't understand that. Nope. No. Nope. And it, cause it doesn't get reported. Um, so typical, you know, people take their, they, they form their opinions based on usually very shoddy reporting, intentionally shoddy, by the way. And so, when he gets up to the podium, he hands both of them, uh, both her and the vice president, a, a signed copy of his speech, and she reaches to shake his hand as he's turning. So then the question is, did he see her handshake? And if he saw her extend her hand, he just ignored it. And did he do that because he would have anyway, or was it because of how she uh, announced him? And then the, the what's really funny, the people that are defending her for tearing up the, the speech the the accusation is that he's unhinged. He's not a civil person. He's you know he's this. He's that. Well, then she just met him right where they accuse him of being right. by her action. Exactly. So you know you, you just want to say okay, let's just stop it. And the, the, 
funny thing is that I heard that they had not spoken since October. Yeah. When she had that little pointing in his face kind of a thing in the uh, at the White House. She's the only one standing and she's pointing her right. finger at him as he sits there. And she used that as so, a PR tool. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's like with the... Uh, for her, you know, this is a somber moment and prayerful and all the rest. Mm. And then she had commemorative pens made up yeah. for the uh, <laughs> the somber event. moment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually saw a really funny picture and it was Adam Schiff uh, standing in front of the Pawn Star guys. And uh, <laughs> the guy that, that whoever he is, Rick, I think is his name, said, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Schiff, but this pen is as useless as the paper it was <laughs> It was written on. That's good. That's, <laughs> yeah, you couldn't give him anything for it. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, Chris, we um, noticed that the Democrats sent a message as well, all the representatives at that State of the Union, and that they rarely applauded or stood up for anything, including um, this the, the uh, people that Trump introduced during the State of the Union, including a veteran, a 100-year-old man, I think, and all these people, they, they didn't applaud for anything. They just sat there stone-faced. They're sending a message, too. I thought, you know, they've been so disrespectful last year and this year during the State of the Union. Does that affect people, or does this just solidify the side someone is already on? You know, I kind of think it's that. Um, I don't know that you have a lot of people whose minds are not made up about things. Right. Uh, I've not met. I've not met the person that when you say, "What do you think of the president?" They say, "I don't know. I don't really have an opinion." <laughs> you know, that person I don't know. I've not met them. <laughs> and you know, the, the funny thing on the pastoral side of things, when people would say, "How could you possibly? Um, how could you possibly support somebody like this?" And it's it's a very easy question because I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but. I knew what I was getting when he was the president. So when he was elected and when I cast my vote for him, it was in California. So what did it matter? Hillary won this by three million plus. <laughs> in California. So, yeah, it's California. So right. It doesn't matter. I'm, I have no representation here. But when I when I heard that he was going to be the president, of course, I thought, well, I, I, I know what I'm getting. I know that he's a, a very he's going to say whatever's on his mind. And here's let's just put away the silly pretense. The stuff that he says, they think it. They just never say it. So it just proves that he's not a politician. Exactly. He's just a normal guy. You know, politicians are the ones who will say all of that stuff when the cameras aren't rolling. That's what makes him so different. But when when he was elected, I thought, well, you know, considering our alternative, Hillary would have been an unmitigated disaster. We would have no Kavanaugh. We would have no Gorsuch. We would have no remaking of the judiciary. What we would have is the solidification of what's already there, tilting left. Mm. So, uh, and I know that as a policy, on the policy side of things, we certainly wouldn't be where we are currently. So it was an easy vote for me to make. Mm -hmm. And then the question would be, how effective would he be? And I got to be honest with you, I, if this is what what business people can do running a country rather than politicians, bring on the business people. Exactly. Yeah, th what he has accomplished w in the midst of the opposition, nonstop, relentless attacks, opposition. Um, uh, he's the most pro-life president I think we've had. He's definitely one of the most pro-Israel. Um, some of the decisions he's made, the move he made. Now let's go to the U.N. Uh, drafting a resolution to condemn the Trump administration Middle East peace plan uh, no surprise, this came out earlier this week. But uh, the peace plan was a little ambitious, Chris, but you've got you've been teaching a, a little bit out in California about this and some of the bullet points. Could you just take us through step by step when it comes to the land, the allotment there, when it comes to um, just the, the fact that uh, a lot of the leaders, um, they said no, absolutely. They rejected it before the peace plan was even out. Just some of the things that are happening politically and with this uh, Middle East peace plan. Um, yeah, David, we've been looking through it. What I did is I, I printed the proposal. It's 181 pages, and it has a Part A and a Part B. <laughs> wow. Part A, really, yeah. Part A, <laughs> I'll tell you what I said to the church, and we all had a good laugh about it. Part A deals with all the stuff that's been being dealt with as long as we can remember of the whole land for peace, but it's totally different in so many, you know, concrete ways. 
when you get into B is where it starts to do a lot of the the arithmetic. And I said, look, uh, we won't look at part B because it involves math. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but it's about the investment part of it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take but maybe two paragraphs into this that I had looked at it and I thought, you know, the light comes on, you say, once again, this is not a politician who has seen to this. And the people who drafted it and came up with it were put in place by Trump and they're Trump-like people. And a couple of paragraphs in, you go, this looks like a business proposal and not a political document. Mm. That was my first impression before I could say anything else about it. And the more that I read it, I thought, this is really intriguing. Not because I hope that it ever comes to pass. I don't expect that it will. Um, And people already on our side have said, this must mean that Trump or Kushner or one of those people must be the Antichrist. <laughs> right. I, I told, yeah. I told the people at the church, relax, because when that guy shows up, you're going to know it. Mm-hmm. And everything that's going to have to be done that's along these lines has to happen so quickly. It has to happen almost overnight. But I really do believe my personal conviction is when I read this plan, though I don't think it is the 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 peace pact that we read from Daniel 9:27 I think this is a blueprint for what would ultimately be done so if people haven't had a chance to do it and if you wanted to get a, a real glimpse at what it is if you took a look at the proposal from the UN in 1947 the, the 47 armistice mm-hmm. and you looked at the map and the allotment of the land and you overlay it with what happened post 67 war when you had Judea and Samaria and Gaza taken by the Israelis and you put those two over to, over one another you basically have the land allotments that were were proposed in this particular um, proposal by the Trump administration so what it is right now if you were to look at it it is probably I don't know 80% of the land that's being proposed is really already what they call the West Bank in Gaza. It just formalizes the border and makes it into a state rather than just a quasi, you know, this is where they are. We let them have these particular areas, though Israel has ultimate oversight of them. It's really very fascinating. Isn't Hamas pretty much controlling uh, the Gaza Strip? <laughs> yeah. And what's really amazing when you read this, it's, it's a document that actually calls it like it is. Because it'll basically say this, and it says it, it has an entire section just on Gaza. And they pretty much said, ever since Israel did the land for peace and gave Gaza, it has been run by terrorists. Mm-hmm. They just flat out say it. They yep. just, without, with, without mincing words, they call Hamas a terrorist organization who needs to be removed, and Gaza needs to be demilitarized, or else there's no way that we can bring the prosperity that it needs. And they use that all the time uh, in this proposal. They talk about prosperity and the well-being of the people, and it's, the, it's really the carrot that gets dangled in this hmm. of are you sick and tired of living like paupers because you're run by terrorists, including the Palestinian Authority. They, re, they refer to them as corrupt and, and terrorist as well. Yeah, well, not, not in, is, huh? no, I was going to say nothing has changed in the last 20 years, uh, even – uh, since 1948, even when um, the Arabs rejected the idea of the Jewish state and launched sure. the first of numerous wars. But in the Palestinian Charter, in Article 9, uh, it, sim- it clearly says armed struggle is the only way to liberate Palestine and is therefore a strategy, not a tactic. The Palestinian Arab people affirms its absolute resolution and abiding determination to pursue the armed struggle, to march forward towards the armed popular revolution to liberate its homeland. We know exactly where they're coming from, so they would reject any peace proposal, I think. Sure, and what it does is it proves to you one very simple thing. You can take a terrorist and put him in a three-piece suit and you've made him into a politician but you haven't changed his underlying ideology. Mm-hmm. So that's why they've never had to alter their what is their charter. And here's what's funny. <laughs> the PLO charter looks like a peaceful document compared to the one from Hamas. <laughs> it's worse, far worse. Yeah. So if you ever read those, it's, it's amazing. 
Well, we, we've got. I've got a copy of the Covenant of the Islamic Resistance Movement. That's from Hamas, and uh, I don't know if you yeah. want to touch base on that. We, when we come back, we've got to take a break. But they've been appear in Islamic resistant movement since I don't know at least before 1988. But that's when this one of these documents is from. But we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the land and what they're trying to accomplish and the resistance that's in the U.N. resolution, of course, that came against the Trump administration. We have uh, Pastor Chris Quintana from Southern California on the line with us. We'll talk more with Chris when we come back. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. President Trump insisted that uh, Israel would have undivided control over Jerusalem and that no Israelis or Palestinians would be uprooted from their homes to make the deal. Uh, Pastor Chris Quintana, I'd love for you to just share more thoughts on this Middle East peace plan. What really stood out to you in addition to the kind of like the business angle that the Trump administration took and uh, the the two different parts of it? Um, well, going right along to the two things that you just mentioned from the administration, when you look at the map and you read the proposal, it's, it's accurate what they say. So most of us, when we think Jerusalem, we think Temple Mount, we might think City of David or the old city, you know, the districts and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But Jerusalem has outskirts, and uh, they're still known as Jerusalem. So if you look at the places mentioned, they are well outside of what we think of as as Jerusalem. They're to the north and to the east are places that the um, uh, the Palestinians, quote-unquote, and I use the term loosely, but the Palestinians would be able to have that as part of their state. And inside those borders, the people that go to visit Israel and Jerusalem would never even know that there was any kind of a, quote, division, because the tourist spots would still be just as they are currently. So that part is accurate. Now, the, the division of the land, really, uh, you, can, you can look at it in the proposal. Anybody that wants to see it, they can see it. It says uh, peace to prosperity. And uh, Trump administration, there's a, a number of ways you can look at it. And these maps are available, the proposal maps. This is very obvious when you look down to the south, the expansion of Gaza, runs along the Egyptian border, and it is very similar to what was proposed in 1947. And he wants to make that industrial hmm. with a lot of housing. Interesting. And yeah, yeah. Then you look up in what we would know as the West Bank or Judea Samaria, and it's pocked. It's pocked up. I don't know how else to say it. There's dots everywhere of blue and brown, which brown represents Israel. Blue represents the Palestinian state. And so it takes into consideration all the settlements and the enclaves that are there. And they would be sovereign territory, and they're linked by all kinds of infrastructure, even a main infrastructure hub that takes you from Gaza to the West Bank. So it's, it's ambitious like no one has ever even attempted. But it's, it's considered to be a, you know, just kind of a, of a whole process not just, you know, nipping around the edges. It's like, if we're going to do this, let's put a proposal together for everything imaginable. So uh, right now, Israel's combing through it of saying, with the proposed places uh, of, of highway and, and railway and all the rest of it, are we closing off either entity so that its people don't have access? And that's just all little small logistical things compared to the whole. So that's the, that'll be the discussion going forward. And for the first time, basically they're saying we need the participation of the surrounding countries to normalize with Israel. And by doing so, we can even more marginalize the Irans of the world and the terrorist organizations. And so there is that element as well. Uh, Egypt would need to open its, its, uh, its ports and uh, its places of entry, as would Jordan. So they would be kind of signatures on this. And that's just, again, it's unprecedented. Um, very, very interesting what's being proposed. Well, the Palestinians, of course, immediately rejected the deal um, before they even read it. Uh, but it has apparently gained the support of a number of Arid, Arab uh, countries, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar. 
So there are countries that are interested in this, and those are, I think most of them are predominantly Muslim countries. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? Sure. Um, if you read the, the details on this, you find that it is calling the Sunni Muslim world to marginalize the Shiite Muslim world. Mm. Think Iran. Mm. So the more that they're able to normalize things with the Jewish nation, the Sunni Muslim uh, nations are all the ones that are on board with this. So interesting. that's what's going to be very interesting to watch. And again, it's proposed this way because they want to try to do what they can to remove the influence of the Iran-type people and what you have up in, uh, in the north in Lebanon being Hezbollah, they want to take the countries that support them financially and make them irrelevant. So they, they feel the way to do that is to go to the ones who don't financially support either Hamas or Hezbollah or Islamic Jihad or any of the rest of those groups and they figure to do that, the best way to do that, to marginalize them, is to get the what would be considered the more moderate Islamic states to get on board. And the, the carrot that's being dangled is it'll help your brethren in the West Bank and Gaza. We forget that there are moderate, just like Christians in a way, there are moderate Christians. There are, you know, the remnant, the born-again, Bible-believing Christians, and, and there are those who claim they're Christian and they're not. Uh, Muslim, uh, the Islam, Islamic faith is probably uh, similar to that, but there are those radicals like Hamas. And in this covenant of the Islamic resistance movement, it says, in the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate, if only people of the book had believed, it would be well for them. But it says humiliation is their lot. And it says Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam abolishes it as it abolished that which was before it. So they've definitely, and down at the bottom says, Allah has written, it is I, or I and my messengers who will surely prevail. And it gets into more detail on this. And, and so they are really, there's the Hamas uh, resistance is very, very radicalized. And, and they are definitely part of this problem there that will not allow peace to reign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically, it, it's interesting when you read this proposal, it calls on the Palestinian Authority to get rid of all of its corrupt people, start a new administration because they see them as being somewhat workable. And then after that, once you guys have got your act together in Judea, Samaria, we need you guys to go take care of the Gaza thing. And so they're trying to get them to do it internally, which obviously makes more sense than making it a military uh, exercise with Israel and, you know, presumably the United States to go in and try to, you know, clear out the rat's nest that is Gaza. Wow. So much. It's, there's so much to understand. And we are so far removed over here and so naive about what's happening over there. But generally, um, as many articles have come out, basically uh, there is uh, the Palestinian leaders, one article said the Palestinian leaders will change their beliefs and desire to eliminate the Palestinian. Oh, let me start over that Palestinian leaders will change their beliefs and desire to eliminate Israel is as likely as Democrats changing their minds about Trump's presidency. And I think that, that pretty much so Americans can now understand that that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah, they have a vested interest in their being a victim and an oppressor. Hmm. And it's um, I said this to our church, and I, I know that it's, it's kind of a, I guess you could say it's controversial, but when you think of guys like whether it was Arafat or if it's Mahmoud Abbas or any of the spokesmen, any of the faces of the, quote, Palestinian resistance, they are the Middle Eastern equivalent to what we have in this country of Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton. They make their living by having a group of victims and a, a group of oppressors. Mm -hmm. And no matter what happens that is, is fixing the problem that has existed, they will never agree to anything that is a permanent fix or even show that there is progress or else they have no reason to exist. So yes. that's why you immediately, as soon as this thing was drafted, they wouldn't have had to have read it. They would have to, by definition, be against it right. because it is not their objective. Exactly. This I know we've got uh, like a minute and a half left. Um, Chris, I, I was watching some network 
No, I wasn't watching CNN. That's impossible. No, anyway, Van Jones from CNN, I saw this clip. He came right out and said, "The de- I'm paraphrasing, and I want to get your thoughts. The Democrat Party better wake up because President Trump is doing a lot of good things for the African-American community. What is, I mean, this is, Van Jones is a communist, basically. What are your thoughts on him saying, I know this resistance is, uh, is something we have to do here, but he's doing some good things and some blacks are starting to go, you know, vote for him or whatever. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that is if, if the Trump administration is really savvy about getting their message out, they should go to every group and say, here's how much better it's gotten in three years for your particular interest group. Mm-hmm. So um, by every measure, the, the, the country and the, the economy is working for groups better than it was before he took office. And if that translates into, you know, ethnic minorities, he could really just have a total landslide. Mm-hmm. By if, every if measure. People are just saying, yeah, if people are just looking at it and saying, am I better off than I was before he took office, it, it's really not even a question. The data just absolutely supports it. And the data supports it, but the media won't report it. So a record lows uh, for un- unemployment, uh, lows for the black and Hispanic communities. Uh, more women are working and the salaries are increasing than ever before. Just You can go on down the list, as you said, across the board. But uh, Pastor Chris Quintana, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have to have you back. And depending on your schedule, I know you've got... Uh, a lot of things to take care of in the next couple months there in Southern California. But thanks for taking the time with us this morning, Chris. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a blessing to do this with you. Uh, thank you. God bless you, brother. Have a good weekend. Uh, when we come back, a lot of exciting guests, a couple new guests next week. We'll uh, wrap up today's show and tell you what's coming up. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. All right, coming up Monday, brand new guest. Her name is Holly Pivik. Her website is Spirit of Error. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, NAR on Monday and uh, other church discernment issues. Uh, Tuesday, it's Dave Wager with Crash. Wednesday, Linda Harvey of Mission America. Thursday, we've got Allie Anderson, another new guest. And she's the author of Unscrambling the Millennial Paradox. Why the Unreachables May Be the Key to the Next Great Awakening. So that's a book that came out last year, The Millennial Paradox. And so a lot of great guests coming up in the rest of the month, too. It looks like we've got some brand new guests I'm excited to have, including uh, Shay Hoodman of GotQuestions.org. Anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And always keep speaking the truth about things that matter. <laughs>